Welcome to our BNS on Aerospace and Defense podcast series. I'm Pat Hindle, Media Director for Microwave Journal and Signal Integrity Journal. And I'm here with our hosts, Brian Goldstein, President, Analog Devices Federal and Vice President, Aerospace and Defense Group at Analog Devices, and Sean Darcy, Senior Director of Aerospace and Defense at Infineon. Welcome, guys. Thank you, Pat. Good and welcome Pat. to you, John. Yeah, we have a special guest with us today, John Park, Product Management Group Director for IC Packaging and Cross-Platform Solutions at Cadence Design Systems. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me. So uh, heterogeneous integration is uh, another hot topic that we wanted to tackle today. So we're going to delve into that topic. And in order to squeeze more performance out of smaller and smaller footprints, uh, one solution is heterogeneous integration. But there are other solutions too, so I thought we'd compare and contrast some of those in our discussion today. And as usual, Sean will uh, kick us off, and you know we always start with what the heck is it? What the hell is it? Yeah. So John, just like uh, you and me, for one thing, we need much longer titles after our name because Brian's got us beat by about five minutes. <laughs> so, with that being said, so hey, so let's start off with talking a little bit about um, heterogeneous integration. You know, I'd like to ask you, John, why don't you start with telling us what it is? You know, how's it different from certain things like 2, 2, 2.5, 3D integration, or like, you know, systems on, on chip or system in package? Let us know a little bit about what you think it is and, and what, what it's being used at or used yeah. for. I will give you my definition, and I've been involved with heterogeneous integration, how it's used today anyways, I think from the beginning, which was the DARPA chips program, uh, which kicked off this whole idea of, of chiplets. Uh, and that's where the term heterogeneous integration first started using or first started being used. And um, I think to a lot of people, it really means just the disaggregation of an SOC. So it really the question, you know, how it differs from 2.5D and 3D. It doesn't. Those are packaging technologies that integrate the disaggregated chiplets that are part of that were once part of a, a monolithic chip. So if you look at a monolithic chip today and we go off and design, you know, at three nanometers, two nanometers, it costs lots and lots of money, of course, close to half a billion dollars. And if you're in a market such as aerospace and defense, where you're not necessarily designing high volume products, it's impossible to, to recoup the NRE in those types of scenarios. So what, the, what a lot of the defense industrial base and aerospace and defense has started looking at, who is really driving heterogeneous integration is, how can we take this very expensive die, split it into a bunch of pieces and build those pieces at nodes that don't cost us millions and millions of dollars to design? So, you know, especially in aerospace defense, we have high mix, right? Meaning we've got, we've got RF in there, we've got digital in there, we've got analog in there, we've got micro, we've got all this mix of stuff. And those technologies do not scale like traditional digital logic. So it doesn't make sense to chase, you know, follow Moore's law and chase after the latest node from a cost perspective or a technology perspective. So that to me is that to that market says, okay, let's blow this thing apart instead of a single monolithic die. Let's build these little blocks called chiplets uh, and let's build them at no, whatever node makes the most sense for that technology. And that's where the term heterogeneous comes in because these chiplets could be at 28 nanometer, they could be at 10 nanometer, they could be in GAN, they could be a gas, they, we don't really care. But you know, tying it back to 2.5D and 3D, those are the technologies used to then aggregate those chiplets into an end product or a system, and some people would call a system and package. So I think a more, more accurate question would be, 
how does SIP different for differ from SOC? Because that's what what to me heterogeneous integration is all about. It's moving to a system on a package or in a package. But I, I think I think you you gave a great I think you gave a great visual description, and I think you also gave a great pros and cons. Certainly the pros. I want to talk about the cons. This this sounds like an obvious thing to do, right? Breaking it up, going to the cheapest. Yeah. Going to the cheapest node that's possible, the fastest node, the right node with the right performance, depending on the function. That seems like the obvious thing to do. So why hasn't it been done yet? What's what what what, what uh, makes it hard? Uh, so I, you know, I, first of all, it has been done. If you look at like multi-chip module system and packages, uh, I've personally been doing this for forty years, and MCMs were here before I got here. So. That, that those were absolutely heterogeneously integrating things together. Back then it was full die uh, and today's it's chiplets. But so, so we have been doing this. Um, and then for a long time, we kind of went to the system on a chip, right? It's like we have these PCBs, which represent a system and to get improved performance and lower power and all these things, we shrink things. That's what we do. And so we follow Moore's law. We just cram more and more onto a single monolithic chip. And you can't, you're not going to ever beat the performance of having that integrated monolithic system. So from that perspective, um, you know, especially in, in the digital space I'm talking here, which is a lot of the commercial applications, it, it drove the market. It set the, you know, the trends. It, it, you know, we just kind of every two years, we counted on Moore's Law and we kept, you know, taking advantage of twice as many transistors, lower power and all these great things. And of course, Moore's law slowing down. Um, that's one of the reasons is is the fact that you know we're running out of the facing the limitations of physics of what we can actually how we can actually scale. But the other you know other factors coming into play is, and this applies a lot to mostly the commercial market. But we started running out of real estate on these monolithic chips. So right, we can only build things in a wafer foundry that are what, 856 millimeters square. So we can only fit so much functionality on that thing. And now people are building these huge SOCs. And that's another reason that a lot of companies are disaggregating is, okay, I've built this, I've started putting more and more on, I can't build anymore, I can't fit any more on there. So that's another thing that's driving heterogeneous integration um, that's kind of beyond just looking at, at, at the cost factor there. And of course, as we know, when we build these huge chips, they don't yield anyways, again, driving up the cost. So I will say, you know, there are applications where heterogeneous integration makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think particularly in aerospace defense, where it's a high mix, low volume, because it is going to be, I think, a more efficient way to design products from a technological perspective, as well as an economical um, perspective. But there certainly will be applications you know at higher volume that are really digital centric that will that will still remain in that world of monolithic soc design i i have a quick uh follow-up uh definition question you, yeah. you had clarified what heterogeneous versus two and a half and 3d integration and system and package system on chip the other question in term is chiplet there's a lot of confusion around what is the definition of a chiplet and how is a chiplet different than what is already known as a no good die? Great question. It comes up at every single event I go and, and speak at or attend. It's, um, and there, you know, there is a definition online that a lot of people are following, but I'll, I'll kind of ad lib it here. 
So in my view, and a lot of people's view, a chiplet is something that used to be part of monolithic chip. So block, like typically a, you know, a macro, an IP block that's been taken off that chip and formed into this, you know, block of IP that's got a little wrapper around it. And that wrapper has, a, you know, a phi that, that uses, that's based on UCIE or BOW or AIB. So it's got a communicate, a die to die or chiplet to chiplet interface on it. It's got other IO, they're, you know, handling things like test and driving the other signals on the design. So to me, a chiplet is a partial, and, and by the way, a chiplet comes from Dialit. The original, when people started first doing this, and I'm not going to name names here, but the original term was Dialit, which is actually a, a more accurate representation, but chiplet seemed to catch on a little more than, okay, than so, But so it's, a, it's a small part of a die that gets broken, that used to be part of this monolithic thing. That is as part, of, but now it's being broken into functioning on its own and being designed on its own, and then the packaging is then what takes and aggregates and, and puts those chiplets together. All right. So a chiplet is it fair to say a chiplet is a known good die, but a known good die may not be a chiplet. <laughs> Correct. To me, a, a, a die is a die. It's a, it fully it's functional within itself. Yep. So I can take a die and it, it you know it has full functionality for whatever you're trying to do. A chiplet is a chiplet. You know, it's a it's a part of a chip that's been disaggregated and and it doesn't really work on its own. It kind of um, you know requires on the interfaces to other chiplets to perform a system or subsystem. All right, fair enough. And, so and there is one other small little variation to that that some people are starting to also use, and that is a die or a stack of die that's designed and architected specifically go to go into a package. So that would be something like HBM. So HBM, you know, based a stack DRAM, um, and it's designed specifically to go inside the package, sitting right next to your GPU or CPU or whatever it is. So it's it's got a smaller pin pitch, it's got smaller buffers because you don't have to worry about driving these huge capacitive loads. And so that there is that the slight variance that some people use to describing uh, a chiplet. No, excellent. I think the reason chiplet took off is it sounds a lot like a um, obscure type of gum that us old people remember. So. Yeah, I, that's why it happened. You can really. still get it. You can still get it on the beaches of Mexico. At least last time I, I was. I there. love it. That's yeah. good to know. Hey, I wanted to ask you just another just quick uh, question there. So a lot of the heterogeneous integration you've been talking about is a lot on that. Sounds like on the digital side. You know how much of that actually applies over to analog RF type components. Is that being integrated a lot as well, or how do you see that playing out? Yeah, so there, are, you're right. A lot of it's being done, you know, at the the hyperscalers, as a lot of people call them, um, to get more performance um, because their ships are too big to, you know, all those types of things. Um, and that's why you see, you know, it's a lot of the standards today, like UCIE. UCIE is basically a digital to digital chiplet communication uh, standard. So. Um, that's where a lot of it's happening. But as I said, you know, it originated with aerospace and defense with the DARPA CHIPS program. And there is huge interest with, you know, the defense industrial base, aerospace and defense moving forward because of the, you know, the costs and things we talked about at the beginning of this little uh, discussion here. And um, so, and you can see that, you know, if you look at some of the programs that are out there today that are being sponsored by the U.S. government, so we can look at SHIP state-of-the-art heterogeneously integrated packages. That's a, 
Uh, DARPA program came out of Navy. Uh, Cadence participates in that. The 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 uh, primes for that are Corvo on the RF side of things, Intel and Mercury uh, Mercury Systems on the digital side of things, uh, and so they're funded through that program to essentially stand up an onshore OSAT. That's outsourced semiconductor assembly and test house. That's our for packaging. That's our foundry essentially are these OSATs, and so. A lot of these government programs, obviously, are to bring a lot of things back on shore. And um, so SHIP is, that's, the SHIP has sailed there. There, That's a program that, that's been out for a couple of years, funded, and moved down, moving down the path. There's a new one called NGMM, Next Generation Microelectronics Manufacturing, I think. is, And it's really about like, the same sort of thing, focus more on advanced materials, for example, but again, doing everything's onshore. And I do, I want to kind of loop back to that term heterogeneous integration. So the commercial industry uses that term as I described, you know, blowing up a chip into multiple chiplets designed at multiple nodes, that's heterogeneous. But heterogeneous integration to more and more people also applies to the materials. And we're seeing a lot of this in aerospace and defense where it's the material is a heterogeneous material. So it's not just laminate. Maybe there's laminate with glass embedded into it, or it's, you know, uh, some exotic new material. So people are, are just now starting to use the term heterogeneous integration to also refer to heterogeneous materials within the package to, mm -hmm. you know, improve performance, uh, better thermal properties, you know, less stress, uh, less, you know, flex in the, in the materials and those types of things. So NGMM is, is, is a program that's, um, the BAA is out now, um, you know, there, there are people are partnering up to, to go after that. There's, of course, NAPMP, there's Reshape, there's Steampipe, there's lots of these programs that are, some are, a lot of them are part of the CHIPS Act. MGMM is, is before the CHIPS Act, but a lot of these newer ones are part of the CHIPS Act, which a lot of people think about, oh, the CHIPS Act is about reshoring wafers. Well, a lot of it is, but a lot of it is also you got to package those wafers and there's, you know, you got to package now multiple die types of applications. So a lot of the funding, some people guess about 25% of the CHIPS Act will, is going to fund, you know, onshore capabilities for assembly and test of multi-die packages. We, 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 I want to follow up. You're talking about heterogeneous materials. I have another definition question for you. You, you hear the term interposer. So can you tell us a bit what your definition of interposer is? Well, there are multiple types of interposers. Um, probably the one people know the, the best is a silicon interposer. Traditional silicon interposer, and I'm not going to name names here, probably not appropriate, but um, it, again, it's, it's, not, it's about 10-year-old technology. Uh, and of course, silicon interposers were able to become interposers because of TSVs through silicon vias. So what that meant is we could now take a piece of silicon and put a via through it and have access to both layers of design, which made it a nice material for adding for packaging because we can put smaller geometries because it's built in a silicon foundry instead of a you know PCB laminate foundry. So we can go down to much finer line widths and spacing. Um, but a silicon interposer today, in most cases, is a passive structure. So it's the silicon and then metallization of, you know, three to four metallization layers. There is no front end line of processing. There are no, no device layers in there. So you're not putting N wells and P wells and building, 
you know, devices in there. It's there are some, you know, more exotic cases of that, but the mainstream example of interposers are silicon. They're simply metallization. They're built in a foundry so we can get smaller geometries. The CTE is silicon, so it matches. This, there's a direct match to the, you know, if you have silicon dye in your your system, you have a direct CTE match. Um, you can get smaller geometries, um, and so that. But those interposers still traditionally sit on a laminate package. So you're just creating an intermediate layer there where you can create much higher chiplet to chiplet or die to die interconnect because you're you know you have metal wires at one you know one micron instead of you know a hundred microns. So that's that's one example. Uh, that's the most up to date. I would say probably the most commonly seen. You know if you Google interposer on the internet, what you most commonly see, but there are other interposers that are coming online. Uh, people use this term, um, an RDL interposer, and that's based on a thin film polyimide. So it's kind of in between, it's cheaper. There are no, TS no TSVs, which makes it cheaper because it's being done on a thin film laminate. And so you're able to get close to the geometries for the die-to-die -die interconnect that you would see on a, a silicon foundry, but you're not, you know, breaking the bank with these very expensive silicon interposers. Um, so there's those RDL interposers, some, you know, there's now some interposers that have embedded bridges in them and things like that. But the, the basic term of an interposer to me is to create the die-to-die, -die, a much tighter density for the die-to-die -die interconnect or chiplet-to-chiplet -chiplet interconnect. You still have to do the RDL out to the package to you know, make it compatible with the PCB it's mounting onto. And that's typically transitioned into down through a laminate BGA or LGA type of package. Right. That's really so I, I did Google it and, and it's actually comes from the root word interponere. Just so you guys had that that knowledge. Oh, thank you. So nice. Hey, so let me ask you a, a question, kind of change gears a little bit. So tell me some yeah. of the what are some of the challenges, you know, how you do uh, simulating and design solutions. For heterogeneous integration. Can you tell us a bit about that, your experience there? Yes, it's harder than anything else anyone's done. And that's because what you're really doing is you're, we have these tools in, in an EDA, that's where I come from, but where we have tools for designing systems. That would be PCBs, MCMs. We do things like signal integrity, and those are well-established tools. And we have tools on the die side where we do on the digital side, we do you know we do static timing, and we work in sub nanometer levels, and we have you know billions of connections, billions of transistors, and these are traditionally two separate tools, sets of expertise, separate. You didn't say use workflows, but they're separate workflows. I know I'll get dinged for that, but that's what you have. And now with heterogeneous integration, boom, those two things are coming together. So if you had ten tools for die design die design 10 tools for system level design you know you might now have 18 tools that are part of your design flow because you're combining and converging the needs of what you still do you know on the chiplet that has to do with die design but what you now need on the systems side so let me give you an example so if you're i was a I designed monolith chips a long time ago i never heard the term signal integrity when i was in that world because you don't you know you're it's all about timing in the digital world that's all you think about is your timing paths and sta closure and all those types of things and and you still need that when you're designing that chiplet but now when you take that chiplet and you integrate it with five other chiplets and you have to do the compliance check between each of those chiplets that's a signal integrity problem 
So I'm monitoring, you know, transmit to receive through some interconnect channel. And I look at the eye diagram and I got to make sure there's not too much noise or, or jitter causing the eye to collapse. So as a, you know, I used I have to know the stuff I did as a die designer, but I now have to know what signal integrity is so I can sign off the compliance of that. That's one example. Another example would be if you're a package designer designing laminate substrates for the last 30 years, um, and you know it's a very informal manufacturing process. Some board house does the laminate for you. You know you get the substrates from Japan or whatever, but it's a very formal kind of informal sort of process versus designing a chip where I have a very formal process of signing off on DRC and LVS to make sure that manu- that GDS can be manufactured cleanly. So packaging that, people didn't know anything about that. Now they have to. Now their packaging materials are being, you know, the packaging substrates being built in a, a silicon foundry. So they get rule decks to say, this is what you need to sign off for DRC. This is what you need for LVS. And so, the, you know, they're learning on both sides and the convergence of both tools has caused what what it's really forced people to look at is to more to put more time and effort into building a design flow because that's a competitive differentiator now. If you have a better flow than your competitor that allows you get to the design done in three months instead of five months, uh, there's tremendous value in that, and a lot of people are starting to to recognize that. There are other new other things that come into play. Um, there's something that the industry calls system LBS. So it's a little different than die level LBS. It, you're now at the system level. You need a tool that says, okay, are my eight chiplets stacked correctly, aligned correctly? Do they connect, you know, chiplet A to chiplet B to chiplet C? Is all that system level interconnect correct? In the past, we used, you know, with MCMs. If I had a four die MCM, I had five spreadsheets, one for of the pinouts of the four die, one of the BGA or the packages going on. And I sat there with another engineer and I said, die one, pin one, does it connect? And they'd go over to the other spreadsheet and it was a manual check across spreadsheets. And, and sure, you can do that, you know, if you have 50 pins, but, um, you know, these designs today are not 50 pins. So there's now this new requirement to, to formally sign off on that system level LVS. Um, there's other lots of cha- other challenges that come to play a lot with capacity you know as you imagine you're you're putting more and more stuff with higher density together uh you know when you put things closer together you have all kinds of thermal problems which of course is tied to power how do you get to the power there now is it too much power you get things overheating causes stress because we have multiple tiers of packaging here you know there's cte mismatches in, in a lot of these they're bigger than they've been so you start to get warpage and and all kinds of other things that you know come into play that have to be accounted for. So I think a lot of people, in my opinion, that especially for if you're an ex die designer moving in this world of you know packaging, you thought initially, oh, it's this going to be easier. It, it's not. It's harder for everybody. It's harder for the the die designers. It's harder for the system designers. Um, and it re, you know it's a big requirement, of course, on the EDA providers, which we are, to create more integrated. Some people, especially in aerospace and defense, call it co-design, where I can concurrently design, you know, chiplets with the packaging, with the PCB, looking at the thermals and looking at the SI and looking at timing and all these different, um, you know, multi-physics sorts of uh, scenarios. I can go on for about another two hours on that topic, but that's just an idea. Some of the I I had a I had a question. 
We've talked about, about a lot of the pros, and we've also talked a lot about the difficulties with simulation and thermals. How about electrical performance? Is there any trade-off in terms of electrical performance and doing a system on chip as opposed to disaggregation? What kind of things do you need to worry about performance-wise when you start breaking things up? So it's a great question. So typically, from a pure performance perspective, when you go disaggregated or into heterogeneous integration and it's two-dimensional, there's going to be a performance, potential performance impact because things are farther apart and blocks are separated with IO buffers instead of just a wide bus, a metal bus going through there. So that's in the two, you know, kind of in the two-dimensional world, that's just, you know, you, you have to deal with that. And the other things that we talked about that are positives have to outweigh the, the negatives there. But when you go into 3D, that all changes, right? So you have this big monolithic chip, right? And two-dimensionally, you know, it's like, a, it's like a city block, right? How much can you fit on that, that city block if you have single-story homes? Not a lot. But what if those single-story homes start becoming, you know, six-level hotels or things like that? The amount of people you can cram in there is tighter. And the people don't have to be on the edge of the city. They can come into the core of the city. So what, what we see commonly today in 3DIC or 3DHI is people take L3 and L4 cache on a digital chip that's mm -hmm. far away. It's out on the edges. And they take it off the edge and move it directly above the processing logic in a 3D stack. So, And then there's just a connection through a wide bus through hybrid bonds. So in that case, you can actually see improved performance. And there are papers out there um, talking about the cadence tools and and the, and the uh, you know and the performance increases and you know the thermal benefits latency band, all, all bandwidth everything associated with that um, there are some you know plenty of documented documented examples of that type of with thing. an advantage in the RF world if you use GAN for the high power silicon for the control if you use the best you know material for the function sure. you get advantages in mm -hmm. performance. Yep. I want to back up on something. You mentioned, you know, some of the challenges of power. How, how do you how do you address those type of challenges in heterogeneous integration? You know, a lot of the chiplets and everything else. Tell me a bit about how you power these type of systems, right? Yeah. Um, so you power them sim similar to uh, it, so we have to look at power. So power starts on the PCB, right? That's where the VRM. Mm -hmm. That's every year. That's where you're getting the power, and the power gets sucked through the package. That's always been where it is. And the package distributes, you know, from the package onto the die. And, and now it's just multiple dies or multiple chiplets that you're distributing the power to. In the, you know, what a lot of people are looking now to improve power delivery, especially as we are moving things across different tiers and flipping things up and upside down and, and all over the place is how you, uh, how you deliver power from the backside of the chiplet or backside of the die, right? So now there's, you know, technology where, you know, the power mesh doesn't have to be up on metal, you know, metal layer 11. It's actually right underneath the die delivering power that way. But it's, it's power and thermal are, of course, tightly coupled together. And what's really changed from an EDA and a design perspective with power and thermal as we move to these 3D HI systems is people want to do that. We hear this term shift left in EDA all the time, which typically means you know, don't design, do your design and then send it off to someone to analyze SI or power or whatever, just to find out it's wrong. That's a little too late. Move it into the layout tool. So the layout tool person can say, oh, while I'm doing the layout, this is what's going on. So we've done that in EDA, but that's not good enough. 
in 3DHI, you actually have to start doing the power planning, the thermal planning before the place and route. Excuse me, it's too late at the place and route stage for a lot of these things. So one of the things that's a new tool in the world of 3DHI is an aggregation tool. So it's basically a system level planning tool where you bring all the chiplets into and they can be black box representations, full left depth. They can be in, in multiple levels of development. Uh, you bring in the packaging, you bring in the PCV all to this world into this, 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 this common platform. And from inside that platform, I'll give you an example of what the cadence tools do is I can mock up a chiplet and say, okay, I think I'm going to dissipate this amount of power or I'm going to have, we have a simple language that says, you know, the northwest corner is going to dissipate, dissipate this much power, the southeast corner, this amount. And so we can kind of, based on our knowledge of what that chip or chiplet is going to be, look like when it's done, we can mock things up, start stacking them. And what, of course, what we don't want to see is hotspots overlapped with each other as we stack them because then we get this chimney effect and the whole thing's going to blow up. So what we want is these hotspots offset from one another. And so that you're not, you can't do that at place and route because three different people, if it's three different dyes, there's three different people, that interaction about bringing it back and forth is too cumbersome. So we do it in the planning stages based on a little bit of knowledge about those chiplets. We can start planning, you know, where the hot spots need to be based on the, you know, the order of the stack up or whether they're face, you know, face to back placement or face to face placement, all these different scenarios. So the, you know, the, the, if you ask anyone that's, that moved to 3DHI, you, you ask them what the, you know, the toughest three problems are, they're going to say number one, thermal, number two, thermal, number three, thermal. That's, I mean, it's that thermal is, is that much of a, a challenge when you go to these 3D stack types of applications. It's because even if you're, you know, put a, you know, a not, you know, something like a DRAM that's not consuming a lot of power and you put that on a, logic die, the logic die is going to heat up that DRAM out of its operating temperature, right? 95 degrees C or whatever it is. Once that thing heats up, it, it doesn't work anymore. So you have to look at it holistically as you start, you know, integrating these multiple chips or chiplets together and even, you know, even a side by side, but certainly in a, a vertical stack. Hey, John talked about shifting left and didn't mention workflow. That's right. I like Very it. Good for you. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had another, uh, Question, I, I like to ask the questions where there's all the confusion. And the other confusion is around the digital interface protocols. You started listing off a few earlier. Is there a standard? Is there still debate over the standard? And do the standards cover, you know, all the different situations right now? And is this, what is the state of the standards? Can, can you talk about that a little? Yeah, good question. So let's go back to DARPA chips which again, I think kind of started a lot, a lot of this. The vision of the product manager, program manager uh, for DARPA chips really had two things he wanted to accomplish. One was to create a library of chiplets that just like on a PCB, I can open an arrow catalog, grab my 30 parts, add my special FPGA or whatever, put it together, I have unique, a unique system. You can't, you know, that, that, that part of it, that, that library of, you know, consumer off the shelf chiplets, that technology is possible, but it's a business case. So let's put that aside for now. The other goal that, that, that Dan Green wanted to achieve was a standard for die-to-die -die communication. And so that's where we started hearing AIB, which of course came out of Intel. Intel made that license free, and that was kind of the, the start. 
but we've you know kind of moved on. There are a couple of different standards leading the way. UCIE, I would say by far, is looks like it's going to be the clear winner. Uh, Cadence, who's also an IP provider, we we're all in with with UCIE. You know, you know we we're a believer in that. I think you know pretty much everybody is in the in the digital space. It is primarily a digital a digital type application. There's also BOW that comes out of Open Compute, bunch of wires is what it stands for. There's um, there was one I think announced in the last couple of weeks by I think, I think the company Zero ASIC. That's a, a universal memory interface. So UMI is what they call that. So I think we've made a lot of progress in standards for die to die, chiplet to chiplet uh, communication. Uh, the thing that uh, you know, often people don't think about is what packages are going to use, right? So we've blown everything apart. Packaging has to bring it together, and we have a million ways of packaging it. It's the Wild West. I can, you know, I, there are literally hundreds of ways I can, I can package these things together. And so that makes it challenging to just say, I'm going to have only one standard, and it's going to work across laminates, silicon 3d stacks is going to work across you know long range short range all, all these different applications it's really hard to have a single interface for that so i don't know if there will ever just be one particular interface i um, mean of course you have to integrate you know the digital with the analog and the analog with the rf all these other things where there are still you know virtually no standards around that so i think we've made a lot of progress in in standards for how we communicate on the digital side between chiplets and chiplets and memory, but there are, you know, I, I don't, I don't personally believe there's going to be one standard that applies to every single package. If, if you look at it, the pin pitch, simple thing like that. If I'm doing a laminate package, you know, my pin pitch is going to be 130 microns, 125 microns. If I'm doing an embedded bridge or a silicon imposer, I can go down to 35 microns, right? So the pin density goes up and I, you know, I, that's going to cost a little bit more, but how do I, you know, design an interface for all these, you know, what is the wild west? How do, how do I, you know, have that much coverage? And uh, the good thing about UCIE is it is designed to work on what's called standard packaging and advanced packaging. So we'll work with laminate, we'll work with silicon. You can get a file that, you know, it's based off a 130 micron pitch, one that's based off a 45 micron pitch. So you do, you do there is some flexibility in, in some of these standards that is coming out, but uh, you know, I look at it a lot of times like PCBs, and there is no one standard for PCBs, right? We have PCIe and MIPI and, you know, DDR4, and we have all these different types of standards. So I think something similar will will happen here. So, hey, I have a, I want to switch a little bit of gears here. So tell, me, tell me a bit about, you know, does AI and high-performance computing change which solutions, you know, are better, you know, SOC versus heterogeneous integration. What do you think there? Yeah. So, uh, you know, if you look at, um, you know, a lot of what's, the AI is driving a lot of this advanced, you know, more on the advanced packaging, the, the silicon interposer side, the 3D stacking. I'm not going to name names, but you could, there's some companies out there that are, that are, you know, announced products where they're in that AI ML space, right? So a lot of that's about memory bandwidth. And so that's bringing, again, it's bringing HDM. If you look at how we access DRAM in the olden days, we had side-by-side -side DRAM placed on these little DIM cards. They were in connectors on the PCB. You had an interconnect going across the PCB up into a package, through the package parasitics onto some processor, okay? 
horrible memory bandwidth. Now we, we started, okay, let's make this better. We started doing package on package. So we put stack a DRAM on processor, but we still had to go through these, you know, package vias types of things. And if you look at where we are today, we're at, let's take those DRAM, let's stack them 3D, and let's put them right, you know, three millimeters away from the processor on the silicon interposer. So that huge long interconnect path is now down to a little, you know, two millimeter, three millimeter connection. So all that parasitics that were involved and the delay and latency and all that. So we, we've made a lot of progress in, in that space, but, and that, a lot of that's driven by the high, you know, the high performance compute, the AI ML applications. And it's now the point where this all kind of is leading up to where we're taking full wafers of processing logic and DRAM and stacking a full wafer on top of another wafer. Okay, so that's a very um, exotic, you have to have obviously a lot of redundancy in a, in a circuit like that, but the performance is incredible. Therm, you know, thermal, these are liquid cooled systems, so these are not gonna be something that is in your, your cell phone or anything like that. These are gonna be in you know, server farms that are doing a bunch of AI ML learning types of applications. And, uh, and those, are, those are out there and they are definitely pushing you know, the 2D, 3D packaging space, is that, are they pushing chiplets yet? I, you know, depends again on your definition of chiplets. To me, it's more, they're more pushing the state of the art in, in, in 2D, 2.5D and 3D packaging to get a lot of that. But, you know, you, you, you will see some, uh, you know, a common example is, you know, IO are another thing that don't scale as easily as the rest of the digital circuits. So things like high-speed certies, why do I do that? Why do I go do that at, at three nanometers? Or is it going to cost me lots and lots of money? Let's keep that at 10, at 10 nanometers. So you'll see, you know, some cases where things like high-speed IO is separated into its own little chiplet and, and put it in a package. So I, long, kind of a long answer to, yeah, I, I think AI ML is impacting a lot of this multi-die you know, 2.5D and 3D packaging. So I guess the other thing I, I wanted to ask kind of on another, you know, market was what, where do you see, you know, what's the use here for aerospace and defense? What else do you see there as far as applications or challenges? I see it. So I have to be a little careful here because I'm involved with some stuff that I can't publicly talk about, but uh, you know, it, 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 so it's, as we talked about at the beginning here, in high mix systems, you know, where you might have some high resolution image sensing and it's, you know, coming through some, you know, phase array and you, you got lot, lots of these, you know, uh, RF and analog and micro, all these different components coming together. That's where chiplets are great. And these advanced packaging technologies are great because as someone said earlier, you know, it, it, I can design you know, my high power stuff on, on GAN, I, I don't, you know, have to figure out a way to put that on CMOS. So it gives me that flexibility to use the exotic three, five compound materials where I really need that performance or that characteristic of that, you know, particular material and where I don't need it, you know, I can throw in, you know, something on a CMOS or an FPGA or something like that. So it's really in aerospace and defense, to me, it's about that cost savings potential, and it's about that high mix flexibility of, you know, designing the special sauce in the special materials only when necessary and not having to, you know, design everything on a, on a monolithic 
substrate. No, that's great. I'm going to let Brian steal, uh, you know, Pat Swami hat to ask his uh, his future questions. So. Yeah, we, we we like to uh, ask our guests to look into their crystal ball a little bit. And I know, you know, going back to the chips program, one of the goals is to create what you said was, you know, an ecosystem and a library of chiplets so that folks could go to Amazon and buy whatever function and chiplet they need. And so my question to you is, does that happen? And if it does happen, when? When do we have enough pieces out in the industry that we could actually start doing something feasible out in the open market? Yeah, so it does happen. There's no doubt in my mind, um, based on conversations I've had with with companies that are designing, you know, today they're building chiplets, but they're using them internally. But they are talking about, you know, potentially sharing those chiplets. Now, will you see, you know, two big CPU companies sharing chiplets across back and forth? I, you know, I, I don't know, but there will be because it's not a technology limitation; it's a business model limitation where. Cadence, again, as an IP provider, is also looking at, you know, how do we make our IP library available in chiplet form, right? So there is, that, that's a business model. How, how, how do you license that? You know, if you, today, if you get my, you know, I license part of your chip because you're using part of my IP. So how do you license it? You know, who owns that product when it stops working? You have five chiplets from five different companies and the thing stops working. Who you know, it, just because chiplet from vendor A failed, maybe the, it was overheated by the, the chiplet from vendor B. So who, you know, that whole, you know, who, who owns what when, when things don't go well uh, needs to be sorted out. Uh, but I think a, a lot of progress is being made. There are discussions about things like chiplet configurators, where if you did have access to an IP library, you could go in, pick your library, say, I want, you know, UCIE here, I want the UMI interface here, I want BOW here, I want a pin pitch of 35 microns, I, you know, you basically configure all the blocks of IP you want, and there, you know, there's reserve shuttle runs, so that these companies that provide that IP, you go into their configurator, configurated a month later out spits, you know, a, a known good chiplet, and you can start, start doing that. So, we made a lot of progress with standards, which has helped. We're having discussions about, you know, more frequently about you know, the potential of having chiplets available, you know, broadly, as you said, from Amazon or where, wherever you might want to go. And so I think we're going to get there. If you, you ask me, you know, give me a date, I'd say it's something that's, I would say, in the next two to three years. And I think a lot of that's going to be as because of a lot of the CHIPS Act. And the CHIPS Act, you know, a lot of people in aerospace defense, you know, realize that this is a limit, a limiting factor on how on moving to 3D HI is the term they use, 3D heterogeneous integration is, you know, is that availability of chiplets. And so with the CHIPS Act money coming in and these programs coming in, I think it's, it's, it's something that's going to happen in the next couple of years where you will you know, potentially have something like a chiplet configurator or You'll just have, you know, a library of, of, of ready, you know, off the shelf sitting in a, you know, a bin somewhere in a factory, kind of like PCBs where you'll have all these different types of chiplets you'll come in. So it's going to happen is what I believe it has to happen for, for all of us to continue to make great products. So 
And as I said, lots of people are, are having discussions about it and it's, it's not stalled out. I, I see a lot of progress in, in moving towards that sort of that consumer off the shelf availability of chiplets. Like, I guess, John, a question would be, you know, so a bunch of my guys are interested in learning more about this. You know, where do they start? What's the next step for some of the engineers and, and maybe some of our listeners to, to go and, you know, learn more about this? Where would he or she, you know, kind of start learning more? Well, there's, there's a book at, on Amazon.com called 3DIC Trends. I'm one of the co-authors. So you can learn a little bit there. Um, there is, you know, there are a lot of universities that are, as you can imagine, I don't know if, it, if you've been involved with any DARPA programs, but they typically in, involve academia on the research side. So there are a lot of universities now that, because of course, as we know, the CHIPS Act, a big part of that, you know, there are four components. One of the big components is workforce development. So there's a lot of effort, a lot of funding going underway with a lot of these, um, you know, companies that are participating, participating in, the, in these U.S. government funded things to develop a workforce working with universities, both, you know, undergrad, uh, undergrad uh, kids, as well as looking at junior colleges, you know, a lot of this stuff, uh, you don't necessarily, you don't need a PhD to do, you know, place and route, for example. So there, there are, you know, there are efforts underway to start to bring, you know, the, the younger generation to bring them into this market, uh, because they don't, you know, there aren't a lot of schools that teach well, for that matter, it's not a lot of it, you know universities that teach you what what you need to do when the day you graduate as a double E, and you know what your what your job is, and you're designing some huge ASIC. So there are there's progress in this area. There's there's always Google. You can you know go out there and and Google a lot of these terms that we talked about, and there's there are a lot of articles that are written. Pack it, uh, that's a, those of us in the packaging industry, we do have conferences at this point it's probably eight or ten conferences per year in North America. IMAP's device packaging conference is a conference that's coming up here in the spring, uh, which is a great opportunity to go and you know attend that conference. I don't I don't work for them or anything. I'm just throwing that out there as an idea. But uh, you can go to these conferences there, you know, people do talks on all the different, you know, everything from material science to thermal analysis to Mixed signal integration, all, you know, all, all you, you kind of pick your track and, and go along and follow those. And there's, you know, the IMAPS events I talked about, there's ECTC. If you're more coming from the aerospace and defense side, go to GOMAC. You know, if you've never been to GOMAC, GOMAC is really, you know, um, you know, jumped all in with this 3D HI. Tons of talks sure. at, at the, that GOMAC for those that, those that want to learn a, bit, a little bit more about this stuff. Well, great. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Great discussion, guys. Well, right. thanks, Brian, Sean, and John, for your insights in heterogeneous integration. If your listeners uh, out there want to have any topics that we want to cover, just let us know. You can email me at phindle at mwjournal.com. Thanks for listening, and keep an eye out for our next episode planned for February 2024. Thanks for listening.